October 31st, 1517, 500 years ago, 500 years ago, Martin Luther, uh, ordinary in many ways, Augustinian monk, nailed 95 theses to the church door in the university town of Wittenberg, probably not fully aware of what his act would inflame. Luther was simply following the common academic practice of the day in which you would nail the theses to the church door and invite people to debate, particularly in this case some of the specific Roman Catholic theology and practice especially the practice of indulgences. Unbeknownst to Luther, this act is now viewed as the start of the Reformation, which spread like wildfire in German states, the Netherlands, Scandinavia, Scotland, and portions of France. It would ignite a uh, uh, fire in Zwingli and John Calvin and John Knox and so many others. Its influence would continue to ripple now centuries later through the richness of the entire post-Reformation theological tradition, which still reverberates. The fact that we're gathered in this setting is in part testimony to what God did in those days. Let me read to you how one writer described it. Beyond question. The Protestant Reformation of the 16th century changed Christianity forever. The Reformation was not perfect, but it was a mighty reviving movement of the Spirit of God which purified the church and called people back to the fundamentals of the gospel. In so doing, it removed from our thinking the emphasis of human autonomy and human tradition as equal in authority to God's word. It recovered the God-centeredness of all of life and the thought by glorifying in the triune God of the Bible and all of his majestic rule and lordship. It emphasized the important yet pervasive depravity, depravity of human beings as image bearers. It stressed the utter inability of humans to save themselves, thus proclaiming the need for God to redeem us by his sovereign grace alone. It exalted the glory, majesty, and exclusivity and sufficiency of our Lord Jesus Christ, who alone has accomplished our salvation fully, completely, and perfectly. There are perhaps lots of different ways to remember the Reformation, to remember what Luther and others did. But one of the ways to do that is by reflecting theologically. To reflect around five phrases that were birthed in and grew out of the Reformation, sometimes known as the five solas, sola scriptura, scripture alone, sola fide, faith alone, sola gratia, grace alone, sola Christus, through Christ alone, sola deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. And so what we want to do over these next few weeks is to reflect on those statements of faith, to remind ourselves of that return to biblical roots, the correction of some abuses and 
swerving off the path that had taken place. And remind ourselves in this day and age when there's always a challenge to, to, to misuse or to get kind of off the, the path to return our thinking and our living in alignment with God's truth. So we want to join by thinking about sola scriptura, scripture alone. Sola scriptura means that only scripture, only scripture because it is God's inspired word is our inerrant, sufficient, and final authority for the church and for an individual Christian. Now, that, that's a mouthful, and I understand, and I don't want this to be too academic because I think in the end it is very, very personal and, and powerful. I want to try to make some, some clear distinctions along the way. So when we talk about sola scriptura, that the scripture is our inerrant, sufficient, and final authority, it doesn't mean a couple things. It first of all doesn't mean that there are no other authorities in our life. There are other authorities in our life. When we're a child, we have parental authority. In the workplace, we have the authority of those who are under us. Uh, we have governmental authority. The Scripture says that we are to, to obey. Even within the life of a, of a church, there, there's authority. So there, there are lots of different authorities in our life. What sola scriptura means is that the final authority, the final word, if you will, always has to come back to the Bible, always has to come back to the Scripture. That is our ultimate and final authority. When any of those other authorities conflict with Scripture, then we always defer to and align ourselves with the authority of Scripture. Well, why was this a big deal? Because you may be saying, well, Roman Catholics, they have, they, they, don't they have the Bible? And, and wouldn't they say that, that they recognize the authority of the Bible? Well, yes and no. And, and please understand, even as we go through this, I'll try to make distinctions. I'll try to do that as, as fairly as I, I know how to do. I, I don't do those in an, in an attacking sort of way, but as I've taught in some other settings, there, there was a reason. There was a reformation. There, there was a reason that there was uh, the movement that we now know as, as Protestants. There was a reason because there were things that needed to be corrected and needed to be distinguished. So if you were, even in this day and age, to talk to a, a Roman Catholic theologian, they would certainly affirm the, their belief in the authority of God's Word. They wouldn't say they don't believe in that. But, but to be clear, the Roman church did not totally reject the authority of Scripture. They didn't say we reject the authority of Scripture, but they taught that both Scriptures and tradition were inerrant authorities. So it was not just Scripture, but it was Scripture and tradition, particularly when, when the Pope was speaking in official ways or councils along the way. And at times, Luther and others began to realize this contradicted what was pretty clear in God's Word or put some things on there that, that had no basis at all in God's Word. And so when you, when you have that, there becomes this clash of of authorities and what in, in evolved and happened is that in practice tradition trumped scripture 
In practice, where there was times of conflict, tradition, the, the words of the Pope particularly, would be the final authority over Scripture. Luther and others rightly took issue with that. And so we come to this principle of sola scriptura, and it means that, that, that God's Word, this Bible alone, is our ultimate and final authority. And, and there are reasons for that. And those reasons kind of grow out of the characteristics of Scripture. And you can read articles or scholarly books, and everybody has all sorts of uh, three or four or seven characteristics of Scripture. There are perhaps many, many, many more. But I just want to, for our sake, focus on three this morning, because there's, there's no way I realize in the brief time that we'll have together on a Sunday morning to do justice to, to any of these topics, but I hope to, to get you started. And maybe before we think about the characteristics, it may help us to go back to God's Word and what uh, God inspired through Paul as he was writing to Timothy. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 16, there are these words, and I think they speak to the characteristics of Scripture. Familiar words, perhaps, to many of you in the room this morning. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, that is a powerful statement from Paul to Timothy about the, 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 the importance of Scripture. And from that and other places, I think we can draw out at least three characteristics. The first characteristic is the characteristic of authority, of authority, that, that God's Word has authority because it is that, that God-breathed Word. Proverbs puts it this way, every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Every word of God proves true. So what do we mean when we talk about the, the characteristic of the authority of Scripture? Well, I've included some of these because I, in your note-taking guide because I, I want you to kind of have these in black and white before you. The authority of Scripture means that all the words in Scripture are God's words in such a way that to disbelieve or disobey any word of Scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God. Now, I don't want that just to be merely an academic statement because the, the life implications of that are huge. That to begin to say that when I come to the Bible, when I come to Scripture, I am coming not just to some interesting works, not just to some religious words, but to the very words of God. And when I disbelieve or disobey them, I am in reality disbelieving or disobeying God. Well, why does Scripture have that authority? Well, the, the authority of Scripture flows from its inerrancy, flows from its inerrancy. Now, inerrancy is one of those terms that sometimes gets tossed around uh, loosely. It gets tossed around loosely, and sometimes it ends up uh, meaning what it really doesn't mean. And so I want to make sure that we kind of have some clarity around this today. When we talk about the inerrancy of Scripture, what we're talking about is this. The inerrancy of Scripture means that Scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. 
in its original manuscripts, that there is nothing in those original manuscripts that God breathed, that God inspired, that has any error, that is in any way contrary to fact. That, that is the, the doctrine, if you will, or the belief in the inerrancy of Scripture. Now, immediately, some of you may be thinking, well, big deal, because we don't have the original manuscripts. So what does that mean for you and I today? Well, it actually means a lot. And we have classes and we've done some apologetic things where we go into much more detail than going to be able to this morning. But let me, let me just try to, to paint the picture a, a little bit for us this morning because I think it is so vitally important. We, we have trust in the, the Bible that we have because what we know is that uh, 99%, over 99% of these words are true to the original manuscript. Why do we know that? Because we have so many copies. We have so many copies that have been, been made throughout the, the years and the centuries, and particularly with the New Testament documents, we have copies that are very, very close in scope in the timeline of history to the writing of those original documents. In fact, is there, there is no other ancient manuscript Scripts that, manuscripts that you probably have never had anybody question in your life that has the number of copies that we have of God's Word and has copies as close in historical time to the original writings. And so as you compare this incredible volume, and you can research this, it, it's, it's readily accessible information in life, but it, and as you compare all of these copies, these thousands upon thousands upon thousands of copies, well, what you, what you find is that you become to have this high level of confidence that these were the original words because they are consistent from copy to copy to copy to copy to copy. And even those that are very close in time. You say, well, what about those others? Well, you don't even have to be a Greek or Hebrew scholar to note some what they call textual variants. So you be picking up, you, you pick up an, uh, an English translation of, of God's Word, and you'll be reading along, and sometimes you'll see like a, a little letter or a little number, and it'll maybe refer you to the, the margin or the, or the bottom of the page, and you'll read something like this, it says, some ancient manuscripts say this. And so where there is any textual variant in these, this vast array of manuscripts, they're highlighted for you. You don't, you don't have to be able to read a word of Greek or Hebrew. They're, they're already highlighted for you. And what you find, again, we're talking about such a minute amount. But even in those textual variants, the, the context for most of them makes it crystal clear what it means. I mean, you just, it just, some of the things just wouldn't make any sense. So somebody maybe just copied a letter wrong and you read it in context and said, so that word doesn't make sense there, right? I mean, if they were using a word processor, I guess it'd get a squiggly line under it or something, right, today. But, but it just doesn't make sense. And so in context, you compare that to all these other manuscripts, you can figure out what it is. In, 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 the, in a mere, very minute amount of them, you, 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 they say, well, we really don't know if it's this or that. But none of those, none of those affects any major point of doctrine or belief or practice. 
And so for all practical purposes, what we can say is that the, the, what we have today, the, the, the most reliable scholarly Hebrew and Greek manuscripts are at least 99, probably 99 point something true to the original. And so that I can have great, great confidence that when I come even to an English translation of God's Word in a language that I can understand, that I can have such great confidence that it is God's record to me and that it has authority for my life. The first characteristic of Scripture, and I think in many ways the most pivotal one, is that characteristic of authority. And I come with this confidence because it flows from God who inspired, God who oversaw the the preservation of it through the years. The authority of God is the first characteristic. The second characteristic of Scripture is the necessity. The necessity of Scripture. When we talk about necessity, again, it's kind of like, well, what what in the world are are you talking about? The necessity of Scripture means that the Bible is necessary. It's necessary for knowing the gospel, for maintaining spiritual life, and for knowing God's will. But it is not necessary for knowing that God exists or for knowing some things about God's character and moral laws. So if you go to Romans 1 and 2, you would say, you would read, Paul says, we're all without excuse because even in God's creation, there are some things that are evident about God. So when we talk about the necessity of Scripture, we're not saying that Scripture Scripture is absolutely necessary for knowing that there is a God. Scripture, uh, the creation itself, testifies to that. You go across cultures and you find sometimes some basis of morality that seems to be cross-cultural because there are some things that are just kind of part of us by virtue of creation. But what the necessity of Scripture says, there are some things about God, particularly about salvation, about doing God's will, about about living the life, being the man or the woman that God designed us to be, that cannot be known from just creation alone. Without Scripture, we would not know those things. And so Scripture is this incredible gift to us. It becomes necessary to know the gospel and for spiritual life and knowing and doing God's will. So Paul would talk about the fact he is not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And how do we become to know that gospel? We know it through the proclamation. We know it through the teaching. We know it through the the proclamation of the Word of God, the reading of the Word of God. The Scripture becomes essential for us to know about the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the reality of my sin and that Jesus did for me what I could not do for myself. And that, I need Scripture. It is necessary to have Scripture for me to have that knowledge. It is necessary for me to have Scripture to grow and to develop and to fulfill God's will. Jesus put it this way, physical food in and of itself is not enough. Man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. 
And so one of the characteristics of Scripture that ought to inform my living is I need it. It is necessary. As necessary as is food for my physical sustenance, the Word of God is of necessity for me to grow spiritually, to be the man or woman, to relate to God rightly and correctly. And so it is, it is not only authoritative, but it is necessary in my life. But there's one other characteristic that I, I want you to see, and that is the sufficiency of Scripture. The sufficiency of Scripture. The sufficiency of Scripture means that Scripture contains everything we need God to tell us for salvation, for trusting Him perfectly, and obeying Him perfectly. That that Scripture contains all that we need for salvation. We we don't need other revelation. We we don't need uh, the other uh, books to be written. We we, we have the the Word of God to trust Him for salvation, to trust Him in our walk, to obey Him perfectly. So right before the Scriptures we just read a moment ago in 2 Timothy, Paul reminds Timothy about the sufficiency of Scripture for salvation and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The scriptures were sown into Timothy's life in his childhood, and those scriptures were used by God to bring him to that wisdom, to that knowledge, to that capacity for salvation. That's why we we are word-centered around here. That's why we want to be word-centered in our worship gatherings. We want the word of God to be sown into the lives of preschoolers on the preschool hall. We want the Word of God to be taught in an age-appropriate way on the children's halls. We want the Word of God to be poured into the lives of students. We want you to hear the Word of God proclaimed not only in settings like this, but we want you to get in those smaller environments. We want you to want you to get in a group or an adult Bible fellowship or whatever it is takes, whatever fits for you, where you can begin to unpack deeper truths of God's Word because we know that it is so powerful and essential. Not only is it sufficient for salvation, but it it helps us to know that there are things that we need to know and things that maybe we won't fully know. Deuteronomy puts it this way, the secret things belong to the Lord, our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Does the Bible answer every question I might have? No. Are there things that come into my life that I wonder, God, why? Why did you allow that? Why did that happen? Why did that take place? Why now? Why in this way? There are some secret things that belong to the Lord. But everything I need, everything I need to know for salvation, for obedience, for walking in in the life that he wants me to live, he has revealed to me in his word. It is sufficient for that. 
And because it's sufficient, there's warnings not to add to it or take away from it. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Ultimately, when we talk about God's Word, it's trustworthy. It's trustworthy because the God behind it is trustworthy. And, you know, even in a cultural way, sometimes we say, well, that, that he's a man of his Word, or he, she's a, a woman of her Word. Well, the Word in and of itself only is trustworthy if the person behind it is trustworthy, right? Somebody can say, well, you, you can count on me to do this. But if they're not trustworthy, their word doesn't matter, right? The word of God, the Bible is trustworthy ultimately because of the one who is behind it, the God who is behind it. Proverbs 119, excuse me, Psalm 119, which is all about uh, the, the scriptures, says, you are good, you are good, and do good. Teach me your statutes. Why, why do I want to come to this word? Why do I find it trustworthy? Because the one behind it is good. Because the one behind it can be trusted. Now, maybe at this point, some of you are, are saying, well, there's more, there's more. What about this characteristic and that characteristic? And, and there is. And some of you are saying, no more, no more, right? No more. It's, it's getting a little too academic for me here, right? Well, I want to shift and ask a question. So what? So what? So what is this whole thing about the, 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 the sola scriptura? What does it matter about the authority of Scripture and the necessity of Scripture and the sufficiency of Scripture? So what? So what difference does that make, should it make in my life tomorrow morning and the next day and the next day when I'm at work or I'm at home or I'm facing this difficult decision or I'm weighing these options? So what? Well, I think there are some things that flow out of this understanding of God's Word. And the first is this, value the gift of Scripture. That if I really understand this to be God's inspired word, I should value it. Again, to that 119th Psalm. Oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. He continues, your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. This is somebody who values the scripture, values a word from God. And I, I think sometimes what can happen to us, because most of us have grown up with such easy access to the word of God. Remember, most of the folks, when Luther was uh, nailing those theses, they couldn't read the New Testament in German. It would be years later that Luther would first try to do that. They didn't have the access that you and I have they, they, to value the, the Scripture, the gift of Scripture in a language that we can easily read and understand that it is our heart language. That is an incredible, incredible gift. 
And we value many, many things. I, I look out and I, I know some of you, and I know we value a lot of things, right? So, so some of you highly value some television programs, right? I mean, you're going to arrange your life to be there. And if you can't be there when you're showing live, you're going to record it, right? You value that. You figure out a way to, to make sure that you are in front of that because you value it. Some of you have a favorite team that you follow, and you will rearrange your life. The TV will move the schedule. The game is scheduled here. They're going to show it later now. It don't matter to you. You value that. You will rearrange your life to be at that game, right? It doesn't matter to you because it, you value that. Maybe you value your family. You value a possession, whatever it is. There are a lot of things that we value, but if we understand this is the Word of God, And we have to value it. We have to value it above anything else in our life. And if we value it, we will find a way to immerse ourselves in it. I, I, I figure out a way it is of such value. It is of such necessity and sufficiency that I am going to figure out a way to continually immerse myself in the Scripture. And again, you see that, that encouragement throughout Scripture. The, the Psalms open up. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Listen, we live in a world where we're, we're often inundated with the counsel of the wicked. We're, we're, we're invited to stand in the way of the sinner or sit in the seat of the scoffers. We need to come back and so value the, the truth of God's Word, this thing that has no error, that is not ever contrary to fact. And we come back to it, and we, we value it, and we figure out a way to immerse ourselves in it. When Joshua was given this incredible leadership role, he had to follow Moses. Talk about a tough assignment, right? And what did God tell him to, to value and to do is strategic to his capacity for leadership. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous. Then you will have good success. That to value the Scripture, to figure out a way to immerse yourself in it. And how do you do that? Well, for years we, we've taught, and it is a, even a kind of a simple hand diagram that just talks about the ways you can get a grip on God's Word. Hear it, read it, study it, memorize, meditate, apply it. And maybe you've, you've seen, we've actually taught in different settings before, just, just a hand to get a grip on God's Word. And you, you want to hear the Word of God, hear it proclaimed in settings like these or others, that I'm going to read the Word of God. What, what, what an incredible treasure. You know, we, we find time to read Facebook posts and blogs and, and all these other things to, to read the Word of God, to study it. We want you to be in those environments where you're studying, to memorize it, 
And the, the purpose of memorization is not for you to, to, to score a perfect score and impress your friends, but it, but it, it, it soaks God's Word in your mind. It helps you to meditate, to kind of ruminate on God's Word. And then in the palm of the hand, as we talk about the application to apply God's Word to my life. Sometimes when I, I, I teach this in different, different settings, I'll, I'll take a Bible you know, like this and I'll, I'll just hold it and I'll say, you know, sometimes we kind of hold God's Word like that with just a couple fingers. We hear it and we you know, maybe read it, you know, read a devotion or something. And, and sometimes I'll, I'll go up and say to somebody, can, can, can you take that out of my hand? And it doesn't take much to kind of rip that out, right? And some of us, that's practically our life. We, we hear it taught, maybe read it occasionally. But it's not a real big surprise when the enemy comes and kind of steals it out of our consciousness, right? Kind of rips it away from the, the forethought of our thinking and living. That's why we, we want you to get a grip on it with all those. Hear it, read it, study it, memorize, meditate, apply. So sometimes I'll, I'll take that and I'll, I'll say, now tug that. It comes a little harder, you know, and sometimes I tease them that they pop my shoulder out of joint or something, you know. Why? Because as I kind of have those multiple touch points on God's Word, it becomes much more difficult for the enemy to take it out of my life and out of my mind. If I value the Scripture, if I understand its authority, its necessity, and its sufficiency, I am going to figure out a way to immerse myself in the Scriptures. But even immersing myself in the Scriptures in and of itself is not enough. That immersion should display itself when I obey the Scriptures, when I obey the Scriptures. So that even, even in, the, in, the, in the, uh, the psalm that we just read, it talked about, uh, about delight in the law of the Lord. The implication is you're walking in a different way. Joshua, meditate on this law so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Back to that 119th psalm. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with all their heart. So there is in that keeping, there is seeking. Jesus put it very bluntly. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And don't, don't tell me that you love me if you don't trust me enough to do what I told you to do. And so I, I come to the Scripture, and I come not just for information. I don't come just merely for inspiration, but I come to, to align my life with it, to place myself under the authority of God's Word, where I understand it and where I don't, where I culturally agree with it and where I don't, that I, that I obey the Scripture. Scriptures. I obey the Scriptures. You've, some of you heard me teach on this before, but sometimes practically this is what we do. We, we come to Scripture, and even if we value it, even if we're seeking to immerse ourselves in it, we come to it and we come to those perhaps moments in our life where we come across something in God's Word God's Spirit's clearly telling us this is the application of it. This is no debate about what it means to obey, but we don't like it. We don't agree with 
It's not how we were raised. It's not culturally correct. And so functionally, this is what we do. We come to the Bible. We might even have glowing things to say about the Bible. But we become selective. And we kind of start picking and choosing. I like that. Like that. Agree with that. Want that. That, not so much. Uh, I don't know if I agree with that. What have we done? We've done exactly what Luther was rebelling against. We've said there is some other authority that is on par or at times functionally exceeds the authority of God's Word, and that's me. I decide what I agree with. I decide what I'll obey. I decide what's true. And functionally, I have denied the authority of God's Word. To recognize the authority of God's Word is not to approach it and say, I'm going to pick and choose. It's to approach it and say, when I agree with it and when I don't, when I like it and when I don't, when it's easier, when it's not, I am going to bring my life in alignment with the Word of God. I am going to bring my life. I have to have God's Spirit to be able to do this. But as God empowers me, I'm going to bring my life under the authority of God's Word by obeying God's Word. I value the Scripture. I value it enough to figure out a way to consistently immerse myself in it, myself in it. And then I obey. I align my life under the authority of God's Word. But there is one more. So what? If Scripture is what we have declared it to be. And that is that I am to share the Scriptures. That I, I am not just to keep it to myself, but I am, am called and commissioned and empowered to share the truth of Scriptures. To share this Word that is necessary for salvation and for transformation. And I'm to share it, first of all, within the body of Christ. Paul encouraged the Colossians, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Immerse yourself in it teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Don't just, just let it dwell in you richly, but make sure you're, you're sharing that. Now, you may never be a formal teacher from a platform or from a front of a classroom, but all of us talk about something. All of us are communicating something. And beginning within the body of Christ, we should be mutually edifying one another another, mutually building one another up based on the Word of God. And so we are to share the truth of Scripture with one another. Sometimes we need somebody to come alongside and say, you know, I believe that too. I'm living this out in this way. We need that encouragement, but not just to share it within the body of Christ, but to share it with those who are not yet part of the body of Christ. The power of God unto salvation is in that gospel. In that same letter to the Romans, Paul said, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What a precious promise. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful 
are the feet of those who preach the good news, that you and I are called to be gossipers of the gospel, to carry it with us as we go, to be those who share. Remember, creation alone is not sufficient for the revelation of the gospel. It takes the Word of God being shared with someone, and you and I have that privilege and that calling and that spirit-empowered assignment to be an ambassador of Jesus Christ, to share the seed of that gospel message that is in the Word of God. We immerse ourselves in Scriptures because we value it. We obey it because it's God's truth. It is the the pathway to life. And we share it because we love other people. We want them to know that God. And we want them to live their life according to His truth. We began this morning with Martin Luther posting his theses on the, the door. Let me fast forward just a few years from 1517. Luther became this this hotbed, if you will, this this target of this movement. And he kind of had to be squashed. He had to be opposed. And so there were things written against him, and there were debates, and there were all sorts of threats, and all of these things took place. January 3rd, 1521, Luther was excommunicated by Pope Leo X in a bull, an official document. In 1521, later that year, he was summoned to a diet in worms. That sounds like a real bad weight loss plan, I know. A diet of worms, right? But it's actually a kind of this official meeting in a, in a place called Worms. He was summoned before Charles V, the ruler of the Holy Roman Empire and a committed Roman Catholic. On April 17th, a great crowd gathered for the event. To keep Luther safe, he was escorted like a thief through the alleys, likely to the rear entrance of the bishop's residence. Wearing the garb of an Augustinian order, Luther appeared before Charles V, who supposedly said upon seeing Luther, he will not make a heretic out of me. The contrast was dramatic. Luther, a simple monk, standing before the powerful sovereign of the Holy Roman Empire. He was confronted immediately with a pile of his books and asked whether he acknowledged authorship of the writings. He quietly responded, the books are all mine. They pressed him further, asking whether he would stand by them or recant anything in them. Luther was shocked because he had been promised a hearing of his beliefs, not a demand for a recantation. He replied, This touches God and His Word. This affects the salvation of souls. Of this Christ said, He who denies me before men, him I will deny before my Father. To say too little or too much would be dangerous. I beg you, give me time to think it over. After some deliberation, and even though they felt he didn't deserve it, Luther was granted a one-day delay. Luther spent the evening in prayer, carefully preparing his response. At 6 o'clock the following evening, he gave his famous answer. 
unless I am convinced by the testimony of Scripture or by clear reason, for I trust neither Pope nor counsel alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves. I am bound by the Scriptures I have cited, for my conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, since to act against one's conscience is neither safe nor right. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. May God help me. Five centuries ago. In this century. In this place. May God raise up a generation of men and women who say, I must stand on the Word of God. On the Word of God I stand. Here I stand. May God help me. That's the kind of Christ-centered, Spirit-empowered world changers we want to unleash in the world. Men and women who will say, here I stand. May God help me. Would you bow your heads as we pray together, please? Oh, Father, how we do thank you and praise you for the incredible gift of your word. And Father, just even, even now, just forgive us. Forgive us for the times when we have devalued it, when we have thought less of it, when we have treated it as not as important as it is. Father, I, I just ask humbly that you would, Lord, just move in us anew and afresh to value and treasure your word. Father, would you teach every one of us what it looks like for us in this season of life, whatever this season of life looks like for us to immerse ourselves in your word. Father, would you move in our lives, even in these, these moments right here, right now, and speak to us about where it is that we need to move our lives so that it aligns in perfect obedience to you and to your word. And Father, I pray that you would empower us to stand unapologetically on the word of God. Help us to share the word of God within the body of Christ and with those who are not yet part of the body of Christ. Father, raise up a mighty generation of men and women who will stand unapologetically on the authority of the Word of God. Now I'm just going to ask you to just remain still for just a few moments more. To just spend this time in, in a prayer that just opens yourself up to God. And we've provided you some questions to maybe help guide your reflection in that note-taking guide in that box and invite you to make this personal.